I have an awesome wife. Keep getting a single amen over here on this side every single week. Uh, we're in our first year of being empty nesters, so we'd have no kids in the house except for me. And um, my wife does a pretty good job of helicopter parenting me. Uh, I got here. She, she walked up later and she says, uh, "Where's your glasses at?" Oh, forgot my glasses. You want me to run home and get them? And uh, so she did. And so I can actually see what I'm going to talk about, which is always a plus if you're going to share the Word of God. And uh, we want to welcome you if, you're, if you've maybe come for the first time or you're visiting or you've never been here or you've only been here a few times. Uh, we just want to uh, say welcome, 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 and, uh, and greetings to you. We hope that uh, and we pray that we all uh, hear from the Lord this morning in some form or fashion, that we're encouraged, that we're challenged, uh, that we're stretched in our faith. Um, and so we're glad that you're here. Uh, we believe strongly that uh, everybody that shows up, is not, uh, that's not accidental, um, that uh, God has a purpose for all of us being together. And, uh, and that big purpose is what we're going to talk about today. And uh, I know I keep referring to this, uh, but it's good, especially for people who haven't been here or only been here a couple of times, that we've been kind of stepping through these uh, different topics on how God grows us in our faith. And uh, today we're going to talk about that big thing, right? That big thing. And so <clears throat> how are we doing in getting stronger? How are we doing in getting stronger is, is a big deal. I mean, and, and I encourage all of us to answer that question. Like, can you, you know, jot down on the, the back of the bulletin or in the, the margin of your Bible today a couple of things that God is really growing you in and really stretching you in? And, and maybe they're really difficult things. Maybe they're really good and exciting things that, that, uh, that really pump a lot of energy uh, into your life and, and uh, get you all excited. Um, but today we're going to be looking at that, uh, that big thing that I mentioned and how are we doing this week on the core mission for every believer. That's the question I have at the top of my notes. How are we doing getting stronger, but how are we doing with the core mission that God has for every Christ follower? That's the question that we want to kind of put up on the board and put in our minds as we get going. Uh, we have one single solitary mission as Christ followers. One single solitary mission as churches and as the greater church of Jesus Christ. Like without this one thing, without getting this one thing right, uh, honestly we really fail uh, altogether. And that seems kind of hard, and it seems kind of harsh, but I, I, I want to, to build in a sense in our minds today that, that this is so important, that this is the mission, that failure is not an option. Failure is not an option at all. That this is something that we have to embrace, we have to partake in. Our mission as believers and actually something that makes us stronger in our faith on both ends, and we'll get to that a little bit later, is making disciples. Like that is the mission for the Christ follower, right? That is the task. That is the, the life embrace. It's not just to adhere to a certain set of rules or, or, or regulations or to live a certain way or any of that. We are to live in a way 
that our lives should reflect that we are both a disciple of Christ and we're a disciple maker in Christ. So that's our core mission. And if we fail at that, if we fail at that as a church, if we fail at that really, if we fail, if I fail at it, if I fail or if the leadership here at the church fails to equip you to be a disciple maker, then we got problems. And let's be real about that. And see, so, so Sunday night, this is going to tie in really well to the announcement, Sunday night then becomes a great opportunity to embrace the core mission for every believer. It becomes a great opportunity. It's not the only opportunity, but it's a great opportunity to embrace the core mission that Jesus gave his followers. We say often around here that um, once, once an event, once a service is passed, say Sunday morning, you guys are going to all experience essentially the same thing right now for these few moments. But once this is done, it's done. Now, through the wonder of technology in the back, you can go back and replay it, but it's not the same thing. It's not the same thing to watch it from the comfort of your couch. Sorry, people at home. We're glad that you're actually following us on Facebook Live, actually. But that's not the same thing as being here and experiencing worship together, experiencing the Word together, getting to know people, uh, spending time praying for people. You will notice, if you're new to this church, you will notice if you kind of are here long enough that as soon as the final amen, the last song is sung, that there will be kind of groups of people talking, doing life together, praying for one another, right? Oftentimes you'll see people kind of gravitate over here to the office and just spend some time quietly, you know, pouring out their heart and seeking prayer or seeking advice, seeking counsel. Once that's gone, once, the, once we all leave, and once we lock the door, that experience then is done. And it can't be re-experienced in the same way in some other format like it can be if you're here. Or if you're at a different church, the same dynamics are true. Right? Our mission is in making disciples. And Sunday night is one of those very events that once that evening is over, that can't be experienced in the exact same way. There's something that we get, there's something that God does as we join together, as we open His Word, as we talk back and forth, as Proverbs 27, 17 says, as we sharpen one another in the faith, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. There's something that happens in that context, in that format, that can't be really experienced any other way. Okay? So we're going to look at our core mission, how God strengthens us, strengthens one another as we embrace this core mission of making disciples. See, we can do all sorts of good things. We have an awesome building. You sit in a building that has been debt-free for decades. I hope you know that. Like, we don't know a nickel on this place. It's awesome. Right? And it looks great. And, and, and God has tremendously blessed us uh, financially in the sense that we've been able to take advantage of, of uh, to do some remodel, to, to make some changes, to make this place, you know, fun and, and, uh, and exciting in that sense. We can do a lot of great things. 
We can go on all kinds of uh, great missions trips and, and support, and we do. Uh, we used to have them up on the back wall. We support a, a vast number of mission, uh, missionaries, and we love to do that, and we love to embrace more and more as, as people come and as uh, they have that common vision that we have for reaching the lost. And we can have great worship like we just did. We can lift up the Lord and we can embrace being in the Spirit, worshiping together. We can do all of those types of things. It's great. And, we ex- and, and we're excited. And if you notice, and if you notice, like the worship team is just, we come and we have, here's a little cue that most people don't know, and I'll give you this for free. We have more fun at worship practice than you can imagine, right? It's a blast. We can have all kinds of great times and spend a lot of time in worship, and that's awesome, and we should. We can spend a lot of money on ministry. We can have all kinds of, of different uh, youth ministry, and, and we do. We have, we have a wide array. If you're not familiar with, with who we are as a church, we have a wide array from, from the better side of 50, which uh, is a ministry that's meeting for how many years? How many years has better side been going on? Close to 40 years old, that ministry is, okay? And it's better side of 50. Everybody kind of gets it. It's mostly the, I've always wondered what side is the better side. (laughs) The closer I get to the bottom side of 50, the more I wonder if the other side's better. The jury's out on that. Um, But we can spend all kinds of money on ministry from the elderly to the youngest of the young. We can put on events and seminars, which is part of the mission, the vision that the founders of this church had, that this place would be a hub in the community, that it would be used, in a sense, as an event center. And we've done that. We've done concerts. We've done seminars. We've done um, uh, men's conferences, um, pure desire stuff. Ladies have had conferences here. We can do all of those kinds of things. But if we lose sight, as I mentioned in the beginning, if we lose sight that all of those things need to point to, add to, reflect our core mission as called us to do as a church from what God's called us to do as individuals. And that's a real fallacy that goes on in the Christian church today. We can do all these things, and if we're not pointing to the central point of the gospel, we're missing something. You can have all kinds of evaluation metrics for a church on how well they're doing. But Jesus' evaluation metric is on making disciples. That's why he gives it to us as our core purpose, as our core task as we follow him. So if we're going to be growing in our faith, we have to get this right. The, the essence of who we are as a Christ follower, the essence of who we are as a church. So open your Bibles. We're going to look at some very familiar passages and talk through this idea of our core mission as making disciples. Matthew 28. Last thing that Jesus said to his disciples... Actually, I'll start in verse 18. 
Matthew 28, 18 says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me and in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We did that this, uh, we had an event like that at the church camp out. We baptized several young people. It was an exciting time. We had a great time doing it. Exciting to see those young people growing in their faith and being stretched, making a public profession of their faith. Verse 20 says, And teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. A great promise by Jesus that, hey, he's, he's not just abandoning his people. He's not just saying, hey, go do this, check in with me when it's done. That's not his way. He says, I'm with you always. Always. And there's three, uh, there's actually th- four imperatives. They're all based on the second one. Go, baptizing, teaching, is all based on the idea that we're in the, the, the process, we're in the ministry of making disciples. In other words, we can do all kinds of going, we can do all kinds of baptizing and teaching, but if it doesn't lead to, if it doesn't point to, if it doesn't reemphasize the fact that we're making disciples, then we're just doing a lot of Christian busy work. And we'll be led down all of these various trails. Right? Another verse that we want to look at, very familiar verse, or set of verses actually, is in John 15. If you have your Bibles, your smartphones, flip there. In my Bible, these things are all highlighted. I've got scratch marks and notes and I was looking at one of these notes even early this morning. That, uh, the opposite of John 15, it's not in my sermon notes, but in my Bible. The opposite of John chapter 15 can be found in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. That's just a little side note. But John 15, we'll start in verse 5. Says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. Anyone who does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they're burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask, <clears throat> you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this the Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. It's a picture of what's expected. And Jesus is teaching on a, on a variety of things here. The first thing that he's teaching his followers to understand is that there's this vital connection between him and us. That we're to abide. That, that means live in. Uh, you guys all have a home. I would presume that you would all have a home. Some of those homes are on wheels. But that doesn't matter. Right? Uh... You all have a home. That's where you abide. And Jesus is saying, hey, he who abides in me, he who lives in me. In other words, that's our resting spot. That's where we're fed. That's where we're nourished. That's where we grow. That's where we affect other people. He who abides in me, verse 5. There's a vital connection between Jesus and us. He's been painting this picture of a vineyard And he brings out the reality there in verse 5 that he who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. 
We should be in the process of bearing fruit. We should be in the process of, and in and, 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 and the, the, the orchard, or I'm a farmer if you don't know that, but uh, it's all about reproduction. It's all about, everything that I do is about reproducing more of what's being grown. So I put a kernel of wheat in the ground. At five miles an hour, they're coming out in rows, right? Guess what happens? That kernel then produces at least tenfold. This year was actually better than that. Seven inches of rain in May and June, and instead of getting a, a ton or a ton and a quarter, a ton and a half of, to the acre of barley when we combined it, we got over two ton to the acre. It was awesome. It was great. What a blessing. <laughs> I'm telling you, the lady that does the books is saying amen. Right? It's a big deal on the farm. And this concept of bearing fruit is a big deal to God. Big deal to Jesus. And of course, he also teaches that there's a warning for not abiding. Verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them in the fire and they're burned. So there's warning for not abiding as a Christ follower. Not staying in relationship. Not having that vital connection with Christ. The third thing is, is there's a promise that comes from abiding, right? There's a promise that comes from abiding. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Now, a lot of people go to the extreme on that. They, they want to think about or we want to embrace the exception rather than the rule. The exception is, is, well, anything that I ask God, is, I mean, anything? You know, so I'm abiding in, you know, Jesus, and I need a, you know, brand new Lamborghini. Thank you, Mother. Thank you, Mother. Uh, there are certain people that shouldn't be in the room. No, I'm joking. It ain't going to happen. Why is it not going to happen? Why is, it pro why, is it, why is the statistically probably not going to happen? It's not part of God's will necessarily. For, I'm not saying it's not part of God's will for anybody. I'm just saying that it, it, what is it going to do? How is it going to point people to Jesus? Well, I suppose if we got them out on 395 and wound them up to about 180, people start calling out Jesus' name all the time. That's exception and not the rule, right? Here's the key. The key is in these little idea that Jesus is talking about. It's not such a little idea. It's a huge idea. If you abide in me, if you reside in me, if your home is in me, and my words, his word lives in you, and if my word abides in you, in other words, that's your source. That's your source for everything. Then what you ask for is actually going to come out of his word. It's going to be based in his word. It's going to be bathed in the word of God. You ask whatever you desire because your desires are being changed as your spiritual DNA is being changed. We talked about that several weeks ago. And your desires then will be coming out of this, out of the Word of God. 
because it's of what's abiding in you. You ask whatever you desire, and it should be done for you. But I don't want a Lamborghini, necessarily. It's kind of like, it doesn't really fit into our uh, game plan, so to speak. It doesn't really fit. So I, I don't have no desire for it. Right? It's not a necessity for me. The promise comes with abiding. It should be done for you. As we abide in Him, and His Word abides in us, our desires start to line up, and God starts working on our behalf. The result of abiding, verse 5 and 8, is that we bear much fruit. Through the course, it's actually a great read through all of the, that first eight verses of John 15. It talks about talking about bearing fruit in verse 2 and bears more fruit. The end of verse 2, you get down to the passage that we're in and bears much fruit. There's a progression kind of to the Christian life in regard to bearing fruit. But the result of abiding is that we bear much fruit. The result of bearing fruit is found in verse 8. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. See, bearing fruit is all about making, being and making disciples. Reproducing ourselves in the lives of other people. There's a lot of myths, there's a lot of stigma, there's a lot of misinformation, there's a lot of bad understanding about discipling, about discipleship, about being a disciple, about discipling other people. I sent a quick text out the other day to the rest of the elders and I said, you know, real quick, give me three, give me three myths about discipleship. I did not get three myths about discipleship. I got like... 28 myths. Uh, you weren't the only one that responded. You were the main responder. I'll give Tim all the credit that's due him. And there's some great ones that I'm going to read. Oh, yeah. I, did I miscount them? Did you count David's? Actually, Dave had two. Do you want to come up and, do you want to come up and get a mic? Who's counting today? I said I wanted three. Uh, Tim gave me six and a third more than I really needed. But they're great myths that maybe some of these will, will spark something in all of us to say, wow, I, I, I kind of think about it that way. I kind of think about discipleship that way. Maybe I need to rethink my plan here. I'm hoping so. If any of these fit into your mentality, and I want to confess this, that they have with me over the course of some years, not so much lately, uh, but there was a time where I would buy into a lot of this thinking, a lot of this mindset as a Christ follower, and it can be damaging. It hinders your bearing fruit. It hinders your spiritual growth. And we're looking into those things that cause us to grow, that God uses uh, to, to spur growth in us. Let's look at some of the opposite. Maybe the Holy Spirit's talking to you about one of these. I don't know. You listen to him as I read this. Myths about discipleship. It's a church program. 
Discipleship is just a church program. Not true. That's a myth. That's a false truth. It can be a church program, but it's not just a church program. Uh, here's another myth, number two, that it's complicated. The myth is, is that, hey, hey, it's, this whole discipleship thing, it's really complicated. It's kind of for the pros. And it's not for just the you and I's type, you know, the regular folks. It's, it's really complicated. That's a myth. That's not true. Here's another one, that it's only for new believers. Say, hey, I've, I've been a Christian 30, 40 years. You know, I, I, I don't need, you know, disciples in my faith. I've got it pretty much locked down. It's just, that's just for brand new Christians. That's a myth. That cannot be supported biblically. It's a myth. Here's another one. It's optional as a Christian. That's absolutely not just a myth. That's absolutely unbiblical and false. Here's a little, uh, I'm going to get into a section that might be a little personal. It might be a personal response to that. I'm not ready. Or it's not my gift. It's, I'm not called to be a cross-cultural discipler. Those are all myths. We're always and should always be ready to embrace learning about the Lord. Right? It's vital. It's a vital necessity. If you, if, you, if I, if we are, are uh, attached to the vine, we need to constantly be getting that nutrients and then bearing fruit because of it. It's a natural process that Jesus was talking about in John 15. Uh, here's another couple. It just happens. Uh, that's also false too. Uh, it doesn't just happen. Now, there can be some organic aspect to being discipled as we're in the community of faith. I get that. But if we are apathetic in our view of discipleship, it won't just happen. There's intentionality about it. And you see that intentionality actually in both uh, Matthew 28 and John 15 where Jesus says he throws down imperatives. He throws down the look of what, what that is and, and how it plays out in our life. So there has to be intentionality. And parents, you know this as well as anybody. That if you're not intentional about raising your kids, somebody else will be. If you're not intentional about their upbringing, about teaching them the Word of God, they will be influenced by someone or, uh, and somewhere else. By other people. It's your choice. Uh, listen to a great podcast over this last couple of weeks about educating our kids, and especially in light of the, our current situation and our culture. And one of the funny quips that we joke about about this podcast, one of the things that actually stays on the front end of my mind is this concept. The guy kind of sarcastically says, hey, we keep as a society, we keep sending our kids to Caesar and wondering why they come back as Romans. Right? That's kind of the idea that he has. It's like, what are, we, what are we thinking? Why should we expect something different of our kids than what the natural result is if we're exporting them out for their teaching, if we're exporting them out for their discipling? See, parents, I'm putting the heat on you. I put the heat on myself 
when my kids were still at home, that this is my responsibility. And anything that they experience outside of what goes on in our home needs to, needs to uh, be in that alignment. And so we embraced ministries. We didn't walk away from ministry. We embraced ministries like Awana. We embraced, you know, what was going on in the life of the church. Because that's going to have added value. That's gonna, that's, those are going to be those experiences that you can't get in any other format. We embrace small group. We en- embrace discipleship classes. Right? It wasn't because we just had an addiction to be here anytime the doors were open. No, that's not it. It wasn't because we had a, an, a, a, a reputation to uphold as being somebody that would be here every time the doors. That wasn't it. We embraced it because it added value to our kids' lives and it added value to our family's life. And that's our responsibility. And parents, that's your responsibility. And young people that are, that are coming up through and, and about to either graduate from high school or, or step into college, you have to understand that, that when you step out into society, that you better have your head on straight, you better understand your word, and you better understand that where are these other influences, if they're not biblical, what are they? And if you're stepping out onto getting feedback from Caesar, are you going to come back a Roman? It's a good question to ask yourselves. Who's influencing you? Sermon from last week. A couple more of our myths. It requires a huge time commitment. That's both true and false, actually. I was challenged with this thought this week. How much personal time did Jesus take? I'll just give you guys a homework assignment to read through the Gospels and see how much me time did Jesus actually take for himself to just kick back, you know, not think about nothing, not, you know... How much, how much me time, how much backyard barbecue all by himself, you know. How much time did he th- take for just himself to do nothing? I know I'm stepping on a couple of toes because my toes have been stepped on, so I thought we might as well be in this together. I can't think of a time. The time that Jesus got away to be by himself was not to just veg out and do nothing. He was actually praying about something that was coming up. It was about preparing himself about what was coming up. It was about uh, being ready, being tooled up, being in the right mindset, being in union with the Father about what was about to happen. It wasn't about just kicking back and watching Sports Center. So it does require this huge time commitment in one sense, but it requires it in this way. It requires it in this way, that it's a lifestyle. And so in, th- in that sense, as a lifestyle, as a discipling and being a disciple or discipling other people, if we view it as a lifestyle, in that way it's not such a huge time commitment because it just happens naturally and very organically on a regular basis. So when we hook up and have a barbecue, guess what? 
We talk about the things of the Lord. We kind of, you know, clang our swords together from time to time. And in that way, it doesn't seem so weighty or such a huge commitment, but because our lives are already committed to the core mission that Jesus laid out for us. That's the switch I think that a lot of us need to make. Uh, definitely a myth that there's no one to disciple. Definitely a myth that I need to be a Bible scholar to disciple somebody. That's not true. You have the opportunity on a daily basis, I have the opportunity on a daily basis, to at the very least share with people what Jesus has done for you and encourage them in that way. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to share what Jesus has done for you, done through you, how he's changed you. Not at all. A couple more real quickly. I don't have enough victory over my own sin to disciple somebody else. That's a myth. We have all the victory we need in Christ. Right? It's a matter of are we embracing that victory, more or less, is the real crux of it. And here's another reality that, that I learned, and especially, so some of this kind of overlaps with parenting, obviously, a lot. That one of the most effective tools that we've learned as parents especially, but I think this is true in sharing life and discipling and, and ministering to people that are around us, is to share those areas where you really struggle. To share in the right context, in the right way, the right time, to be open and transparent about it. Because a lot of times the enemy wants to come in and, and take that, that thing, that area that, that has uh, uh, been the biggest you know, hurt or pain, and he wants to take that and make you feel shameful even though you've been forgiven. Even though I've been forgiven for my hypocrisy, for my struggles, for my sin in the past, the enemy wants to come in and keep you know, covering that over with some sort of shame simply to make your testimony ineffective in your own mind. But the reality is, is there's people out there that need to hear what God has done in your life. They do. That's how God works. That's how God, through His Holy Spirit, starts to minister in people's lives. So the myth that you don't have enough victory over your own sin in order to affect some change and some encouragement in somebody else's life is really, that's really false. And last two... And discipleship means that I give up my autonomy as a person. That's not true. We're all created as individuals. But the idea of this autonomy that my individuality is more important as a Christ follower than what God has called me to do in the lives of the people around me is, is a huge, huge uh, sticky point in the church. Let's be honest about that. It's really a hindrance for churches not moving forward, for groups of people not moving forward, that my individuality as a Christ follower is more important than how uh, or where or who God wants me to reach. And so we hang out and we're more worried about my me time than our we time. 
We need to have a lot more we time. We had a great little, just, uh, just kind of just in a little impromptu conversation uh, a couple weeks ago after our all-board meeting that was, that was really eye-opening. We were talking about home fellowship, small groups, kicking that off, and there were some great ideas. Tim was actually just, he just said, he basically was just kind of quizzing. A couple of the deacons were leaving, but they kind of filtered through the office over here, and we just had this great little conversation. He just asked, you know, uh, them real quick, like, you know, what do you, I don't remember exactly your question, but kind of what is, you know, what do you think would be effective for us? For NLCC, what do you think would be effective? Because it seems like, seems like for all these years, and th- this is true, it seems like we've, we, we talk about home groups, we promote home groups, we talk about small groups, kind of till we're blue in the face, but generally it's just kind of the same people and kind of the same groups. And there's some years we'll have four, five, six maybe small groups, but other years generally two or three. And so what is it that would help our church get unstuck in this area of small groups? Some great ideas came out of that conversation. One of them is is that we don't know one another well enough. So there's this uncomfortability. Right? So maybe, maybe what needs to happen is we need to kind of look around the room and, and just invite two or three couples over for dinner for a while. Because when you share a meal, you begin to share life together. You start to do life together. And the conversation then can naturally flow into what's God doing in our lives. Maybe it just needs to start with, with groups of people jumping in and saying, Hey, you know, uh, we're going to meet over at Pete and Christie's place and have dinner. You know, or we're going to meet at our place or whatever. I'm not volunteering you guys, but I know that you embrace this mindset. So... Uh, and you love to have meals. And every time I go to the Whitakins, we have <clears throat> Mexican food, which is not an advertisement for the Whitakins, but it is really good. That part's an advertisement. Uh, another suggestion <coughs> came this way. Maybe we're thinking about small group upside down. Here's what I mean by that. It was actually Jonathan's suggestion. That we think that maybe if we can get these groups of people together, and, and I firmly believe that instead of being in rows, we really do life together best when we're in small circles. Okay? We get, you guys get that concept? Like we're kind of all in rows, even though it's one big circle. You're still in rows. But when we group together, two, three, four families, whatever it is, various age groups, up and down, doesn't matter, that we, that group then really begins to do life together and they talk about their struggles and they talk about their, their needs. And we have a tendency as a church to think that, that if we can get people into the church, that then them, they will gravitate, gravitate towards a small group. And Jonathan says, I think we're going to go the other way. Him and Michaela are praying about going the other way. It's like rather than trying to pull it all out of here, let's go out there where we're supposed to be ministering and let's grab a couple of friends. Let's grab two, three, four couples. Whether they know the Lord or don't, doesn't matter. Let's start having dinners. Let's start naturally talking about the Lord. And rather than, than the church introducing people to Christ, we will introduce them to Christ in the small group format, home group format, and then they can plug into some church. 
pretty much taking the whole paradigm and flipping it backwards. And so there was these back and forth thoughts. And, and, and I just throw this plug out there that I believe wholeheartedly that we all need to embrace the idea that you're going to be uh, discipled and have opportunities to disciple other people. Proverbs 27:17 says to sharpen one another like iron sharpens one another. That's not going to happen while you sit here and listen to me or somebody else talk for a half hour or 45 minutes or an hour if I have an extra page of notes. That iron sharpening iron doesn't happen right now. Today is all about worship. Today is all about coming together and corporately lifting up the name of God. Corporately lifting up Jesus. It's about proclaiming His Word. Sunday is all about worship and proclamation. And doing that as a big fan, the big family. But the other opportunities are, very, are a lot more spot specific. So whether it's Tuesday night, whether it's Thursday night, whether it's whatever night, and even Sunday night, even though we have a very specific purpose for, for discipling in that sense, uh, still, we still have those same elements of breaking out into small groups and, and talking about the things that is going on in our lives. Don't buy into, don't buy into these myths. We can make all the excuses we want, but it doesn't change Jesus' words in Matthew 28. We grow through discipleship and we grow through discipling other people. We grow through being discipled, but you're going to grow. You want to hit the gas pedal on your Christian walk? Start teaching somebody else. And the reality is, is a lot of us are too afraid to do that. Like I mentioned, uh, what's it been a couple months ago, you know, out of Hebrews, uh, we're too long on the milk and not enough on the meat. The writer of Hebrews says, you know, you ought to be teachers at this point. There's an expectation that we grow in our faith and that we take that and affect change for other people through doing life together. And that's what discipling is at its pure essence. Don't let the cultural excuses, the unknown or fear, keep you from embracing the number one task that Jesus has for every believer. All right, we've looked at the negative a lot, enough, and I don't have a lot of time left. I'm going to blast through five things that I wrote down that are true of a disciple maker, a disciple who becomes a disciple maker. These, of course, if you look through the Gospels, demonstrated by Jesus over and over again, the number one thing is only assignment. Only assignment of being discipled and discipling somebody else. Because we can read Matthew 28, we can read John 15 till we're blue in the face, but if we don't make it personal, if I don't make it personal, then I'm not doing what God's called me to do. If we don't make it personal, we're not doing what God's called us to do. We have to own the assignment. First we follow, then we fish. Matthew 4.19, Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. First we follow, as a Christ follower, first we're a follower, then we go fishing. Right? First we follow, then we fish. It's pretty simple. And we need to be fishing. 
And what do you do if you're fishing and you don't catch anything? You make an adjustment, right? You make an adjustment. You'll hit a crisis of faith, as the Blackabees say. In that process of, of reaching out to other people, you hit that crisis of faith. Then what do you do? You make an adjustment. What is God saying? Where is he taking me? How is he shifting me either in my thinking or in my process of doing? Make the adjustment. Don't get stuck with nothing. Right? Uh, it's interesting reading through the um, Gospels. Uh, Peter and his brother were professional fishermen before they followed the Lord. But by all accounts, they weren't really that good. Right? They just, eh, you know. Along comes the Lord. You know, ah, throw your nets on the other side. Really? We've been fishing all night long. You want us to make an adjustment? Well, guess what happens? For whatever reason, Peter said, all right, we'll try it your way. Let's go out the other side, you know, nearly capsizes the boat. Make the adjustment. But you can't make an adjustment to something that you don't own. And we have to own the assignment of being discipled and being a disciple maker. Understand the method. Number two, understand the method of how Jesus worked. It was life on life. Jesus worked life on life. This is life on lives and is an effective to a point. But if you guys all look, if this group over here, you guys, instead of looking at the screen, don't look at the screen, don't look at me, look at that group over there, you guys look at those guys, you guys look over here and you guys look over there. Real quick, quick exercise. Just go ahead and turn a little bit, just shift a little bit, look at each group that's in the church, see somebody you know, Tim's waving on the far left, right? So hypothetically, if Pete and Tim got together to, to study the Word and to kind of disciple and to sharpen one another, right there, life on life. Daniel over here, Josh here, are part of a group of uh, a couple of dudes, four dudes, four families that do life together that are already meeting, doing exactly what I'm talking about. They're just going for it in a small group setting, doing life together, and it's life on life. That's how Jesus works. And if we're going to hide out in our backyards because we need a lot more me time, then you have no time for life on life. That's the reality. That's the truth. Jesus did life together with the people that he was discipling. The apostles carried the same pattern forward into the church age. And here's the statistic that backs up where I'm going. 75% of really true discipleship and discipling happens in an informal setting. It doesn't happen here right now necessarily. It happens in an informal setting. It happens when you're sitting in a lawn chair with your toes in the grass, you know, eating a burger, somebody's backyard, doing life together rather than apart. 75% of it, the majority by a long shot, is completely informal. Embrace this idea. 
in understanding the method. First, we consider the cost. We talked about that. How much time did Jesus really take for himself? Another idea there is to embrace hospitality. Invite people over. I want to make just a slight distinction, and I don't want us to, like, hang the moon on this distinction. But I think it is important to remember, and it's something that Jonathan stirred up in that little conversation. There's a difference between hospitality and fellowship. There's a difference between hospitality and fellowship. Like I said, don't make too much of this, but I think it's important to put this in context. Hospitality is a mixed crowd. Hospitality means that you invite your neighbor over. You know, maybe he's got a little drinking problem, and uh, maybe he needs a little somebody, a different crowd to hang with. You know, maybe they're non-believers, or they believe something completely different, some other format or fashion. We can't be afraid of being in a mixed crowd and hosting a, a mixed crowd. We need to be hospitable in that way, where fellowship zeroes in on we're all like-minded here in our belief and we're getting together in that way. Uh, at some point we are going to get back to, I, I can't believe this hasn't came up, maybe it has. At some point we're going to get back to having a potluck in this place. Right? Because that's our Sunday fellowship. Lot, how many amens did I just hear? I heard a couple. Right? That's more fellowship where hospitality is is drawing in that mixed crowd on purpose with intentionality. We must <clears throat> open our lives up to those, those that are around us. Here's a little pop quiz for you. Not for right this second. But if I ask you, if I ask you, can you open the contact list on your phone and invite three people to coffee this week that you know are not believers? That's reaching out for hospitality. That's drawing in people that, that don't think like you, that, that people that you know, people that you work with, people that are maybe live next door, right? But can you do that? Does that scare you to death? Is it easier to look across this room with people that you do know and saying, hey, let's go get coffee? Because you know there won't be any potential rub or there won't be any, you know, uh, challenge to... To your thinking. Can you do that? Little pop quiz? Jesus' method was life on life, one on one. Hey, we have to be ready for a plan, number three. What's your plan for discipleship? Uh, we can, we can, you can be in challenged and, and run out of here with your hair on fire, but if you don't have a plan for moving forward, uh, you're just standing in the parking lot with a lot of singed hair. Right? You've got to be ready with a plan. I've got to be ready with a plan. What's our plan for discipleship? And again, that doesn't come from just what does the church say or what is the church doing. Too often we look at the church to develop that plan as just to say it's just the church's responsibility. Well, aren't you a church leader? Should, you know, shouldn't that be your responsibility? You need to tell us what the plan is. Develop a plan. The same Holy Spirit that works inside of your church leadership here is working inside of your life if you're a Christ follower. You think that he's going to be inconsistent with a discipleship plan? Not at all. 
Not at all. There might be some different methods. There might be, there might be some twists and turns. But the, the essence of affecting another person for the cause of Christ, and sharing your faith, and developing a relationship, those core things are going to be the same. and They're going to be in play for you. They're going to be in play for me. There was a guy that uh, walked into a, was at a church, come up to the pastor after the uh, service and, and, you know, sat there and, <clears throat> excuse me, asked him, hey, hey, pastor, what's your plan for evangelism? In this? What's your church's plan for evangelism? And the pastor looked at me and said, well, what's your plan? He's kind of stunned. Well, what's your plan for small groups? I want to know what your small groups are. Well, he said, what's your plan for small groups? Right? What the pastor was doing for him is the same thing that I'm doing here, and that is challenging us all to think of the fact that, that it is not pre-programmed, pre-packaged for you. Rather, the table is open for all of us to dine in the area of discipleship and to both consume but also to serve one another. Also to, to put it out there for somebody else see he was trying to get this guy to think outside the box like what's his personal plan jesus didn't say oh by the way guys when the church is formed when it's down the road when it's this when it's that here's your plan no he said you as individuals and you as a group of men and for every believer that follows after you go and make disciples it's just simply that Simplistic. Make the invitation. Not only do we have to have a plan, but we have to make the invitation. We've got to pray and move forward. We've got to know where God is working. We have to know where God is working, and we need to start stepping in that direction. You guys are getting the, like, the most basic of cliff notes out of the Experiencing God study if you didn't come for the last several months. Where's God working? Go join Him in that process. Go join Him in that adventure. And in that adventure, I will guarantee you, discipleship will be an aspect of that, and a huge aspect of that. So pray and move forward. We have to make the invitation. Isn't it interesting that Jesus spent the night praying The night before, he spent that night praying. The night before, he started saying, hey, follow me, follow me, follow me. The night before, he started grabbing guys and saying, hey, leave it. I have a new life for you. Isn't that interesting? The fifth thing that I have is kind of two parts. I kind of squeezed them into one. For the sake of time, I'll hustle through it. It says, Simply this is that it's too easy to make excuses. We have to stop making excuses. We've got to start today. If you think you can't, you won't. If you think God can, He will. If you think you can't disciple somebody, then you never will. It's, a, it's that simple. And I'm not talking about the, pos the power of positive thinking. I'm simply saying that if you don't believe that that's what God has for you to do, you will not do it. You won't embrace it. You won't, you won't give it a second thought as soon as I'm done talking. 
If you don't believe you can, you won't. But if you believe that God can, guess what? He'll meet you there. And it's not about Him just coming in to, you know, uh, shore up your, you know, fragile ego in what you think needs to happen. No, He will because that's His will for you and for me. It's to be a disciple and be a disciple maker and to grow in our faith in that way. If you think you can't, you won't. If you think you can, He will and you will follow. Think of those excuses that hold us back. I don't have time. I'm not that good with talking with people. I don't know what to say. It's not my... This is, the, sancti- this is the, the sanctified excuse. It's not my gift. It's not my gift. Really? You're going to use that excuse and still read Matthew 28 with a straight face? I'm expected. You guys would all expect me, right? Let's be really transparent here. You guys would all expect me to be discipling people. Or Les, or Tim, David, or if we want to really stretch out into the board, Bill, Josh, Tim, you know, Jim. You guys would expect that of your church leadership. Don't let those expectations be an excuse for you not embracing on what the Bible says. That's the slipperiest trick of the enemy there is. Is that I don't have to do it because somebody else will. Wrong. It's not my gift. Jesus isn't talking about giftedness. He's talking about what his expectation is for his followers. We're all gifted. That's why discipleship can take many forms and, and, and looks. is because the way that one person would approach it through their giftedness, through, through their life experience, through the things that God has taught them, through the things that God has overcame in their life, will kind of look a little different, but there's unity amongst that. So maybe the way that Josh would disciple somebody would look different than me. He's had, a, he's had a lot of different life experiences. I've had a lot of different life experiences. Dennis has had some crazy life experiences, even this week, right? So how that would look would look a little different, but there's consistency and there's unity when it's done in Christ. Stop making excuses. Let's get her started today. It simply is this. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. Evangelism is simply doing normal life with gospel intentionality. That's what evangelism is. It's doing normal life with a gospel intentionality. That means that if I'm in the process of building a home or remodeling or building a house for somebody else, or farming a piece of ground for somebody, or, or uh, I work and travel a lot, uh, I'm a homemaker, or I work at the ski hill in the winter, or at Ronnie D's when I'm not in school, or I'm about to get married, or I've been married a year, or I've been married a couple hundred years, like David, Linda. Right? That, that my evangelism with the people around me is simply having a view of the gospel that I'm being intentional to pass on the free gift, the message of Jesus with the people around me. That's how simple it is. 
That's how simple it is. It's just doing normal life. We normally eat. This might not be true for every single person. It's fairly true for me. We normally have 21 meals a week. Why not have some of those meals with people that we want to reach? Every single instance of Jesus making disciples, this, do a little research, this one really got me. And that's why I just said the last, the last question. Every single instance of Jesus making disciples in the Gospel of Luke involved him at going to or coming from a meal. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that a Savior we can follow? You guys are kind of... <laughs> I'm trying to give you like the thumbs up. Like, why not share a meal with people? You have 21 opportunities a week if you normally eat three meals a day. I'll step out on a thick limb, say there might even be some of us that eat more than 21 meals a week. And I may or may not be in that category, depending upon how much food Mary Weeby sends to a board meeting. And a few other occasions. So we have these opportunities. You have 21 opportunities every single week to invite somebody to a meal. Some of the best times that I had in the process of discipling was sitting in the crew cab pickup with five other guys on a job site. And guess what we were doing? We were sharing a meal out of our lunch boxes. We're sharing this meal, it's pouring down rain, and I looked around, and all we're doing is we're talking about the Lord, and guess what? Everybody had a Bible open. It's a precious time for me and, and, and a bunch of my buddies that I used to work with. I'm building a house over in Idaho. That's what I'm talking about. It doesn't have to be, you know, uh, set up in some gigantic, spectacular way. It's simply doing normal life with the gospel intentionality. And share it with those that are around you. Share it with your neighbors. Share it with, your, with uh, uh, people that you work with. Share it with people that you come in contact with. But be intentional about it. And embrace the core mission and, and task that Jesus has laid out, not just for kind of this vague you know, this is what the church is supposed to be about. But we got to own making disciples. We have to own it as individuals. And if we all own it, if every single person in this room, every single person that goes to this church would own that as saying, nope, that's what, it's, that's what Jesus has for us to do. I'm owning it individually. Uh, it changes the dynamic of a church. It changes the dynamic in a community. It changes the dynamic in society. And our society's got a mountain of issues right now. And we're worried about all sorts of things that are out there, that are, that are uh, uh, potential hazards, that are, you know, catastrophic, that, that uh, you know, we're all staring at November, what's going to happen in November. We're all staring at the TV screen, looking at the latest numbers on the pandemic we're all staring at at you know and <clears throat> what i see on the internet last night you know oh now they say an asteroid is going to come real close to the earth and i mean we're scared to death 
Our society is in a panic state. That panic state is being propagated at an alarming rate. And the biggest danger of it all is the fact that God has been removed so deeply. If there's nothing that this pandemic does not expose for the, for the Christian, it should be that, that God has been so removed from our society that we're scared to death of death. We're scared to death. There's no room in our society, there's no room in, in our culture for God and His sovereignty to work. We're not looking to God as a country. We're not looking to God as a culture to answer what's going on right now. We stare at this TV screen and fear is propagated at hyperspeed and it has an influence on everybody that soaks it in. There's no room for God to work. And I'm telling you that if we get this right, if we get discipling right, that will naturally come against those cultural influences. Because we can walk in faith. We can walk in faith. We don't have to stress and strain. Right? Hey, nobody's making it out of here alive. Exactly half a mile through that door, across the tracks, across the field, across the Colville River, and across another pasture is a graveyard of all kinds of people that didn't make it out of here alive. But our culture is scared to death to die. So we lock ourselves down, we close ourselves off, we're scared to death that we might get sick. As a culture, we're scared to death of death. We got nothing to fear. I'm more afraid, and I'll close with this if the worship team wants to come up, I'm more afraid of not getting this right than I am of death. That's where I'm at today. I'm more concerned with not getting discipling correct, you know, than if I should get sick and, you know, pass on. And I'm not saying that we should be stupid about it. We should be smart. But are we leaving room for God to work? As a society, are we leaving room for God to work? Are we, are we relying upon Him in that way? And are we following to the utmost what He's commanded us to do in Matthew 28 and in John 15? Are we hiding out, gathering more me time, passing the clock, doing our thing? You have to ask, answer those questions for yourself. I want to encourage us to embrace it. That's why we embrace Sunday night. That's why we embrace small groups. That's why we are constantly talking and figuring out, like, how can we, how can we solve some of these cultural problems inside the church like people not doing life together? We have to do life together. We're called to, we're commanded to do life together in that sort of a way. Read through these scriptures again. See what Jesus has to say. Embrace it as your life journey. Like this doesn't end, right? 
This is not just an event. It's not just a church class. It's not just a, uh, you know, get together of, of, you know, fellas or ladies that happens once in a while. Embrace disciple making the way that Jesus intended. And that is to be the core mission of your life as a Christ follower. Let's worship.